Welcome back to the Thunderbolts Project podcast. Montgomery Childs is an independent engineering consultant with background experience in many fields, coordinating multi-billion dollar engineering projects, working directly with both the government and private sectors, an author of three college engineering textbooks, and holder of several international technical patents. He is also a successful business leader. His current project may usher in a new era of understanding for our world's most important neighbor, the sun. Sapphire, the stellar atmospheric function in regulation experiment, is an ambitious technical exploration of our sun's environment and effects. Mr. Childs was kind enough to sit down with me following his presentation on Sapphire at the Electric Universe 2013 conference to explain what Sapphire is all about when it can be expected to go online, and what it will take to get it there. I hope you enjoy this interview. So what's Sapphire about? Well, there's a number of challenges the scientific community, and that includes NASA and um, Solar Dynamics Observatory and ESA, you know, there's challenges with the current model of the sun. You know, back in the 40s, you know, the, the nuclear bomb exploded and Visually, it's like, well, you know, we have the sun on the earth. Why does the sun shine, right? And you'll hear executives from Lockheed Martin and others, you know, that's really a fundamental question. You know, what is the sun all about? And I would have to agree. If I was in the 40s and with what I knew at the time, I would say, wow, you know, we've got the sun on the earth and it's really this nuclear ball. And uh, it makes sense. However, you know, over the years, um, you know, as we discover more things that are occurring with the sun, it's becoming progressively more difficult to reconcile these phenomena uh, with, with that model. It doesn't mean the model's wrong. It just means that there's some challenges with it. Well, what Sapphire is about is to examine those phenomena, and it could be simultaneous coronal mass ejections. It could be super rotation of the plasma torus that uh, Ulysses discovered, you know, the the space probe, um, and we have pictures of this, and it's rotating faster than, like, say, the atmosphere, you know, close proximity to the sun itself. Spicules, sunspots, you know, these 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 things, the thermal challenges that we have with respect to, uh, you know, a cooler photosphere with respect to the a little bit further out, you know, it gets significantly hotter. Uh, ion acceleration. It's um, I do a lot of physics and. You know, um, in order for a particle or for us to accelerate in our car, you know, we need a force to do that. So, as an example, if we have uh, coronal mass ejection, it would be normal to expect that the initially there's going to be initial acceleration, but that they would either maintain their velocity, best case, but they would probably start to slow down. But we're not seeing that. We're seeing they're actually speeding up. So what what is causing these particular things? we take a look at a plasma discharge, many of these particular features that were noted back around the turn of the century with Christian Birkeland, and subsequent to that, there was experiments that were done in the 60s by Quinn and Schmidt and Fiordal and others out of Penn State, they saw these particular phenomena occur. But at the time, with Quinn and Schmidt and Chan and others, you know, they weren't focused in on that this would have anything to do with the sun. They were looking, their experiments were more oriented towards um, bringing plasma into a controllable, stable state. Because it's very, 
if you've ever seen a plasma ball, you know, it's moving around, it's, some people say plasma is very lifelike, you see, and it, and it has a lot of characteristics that are like that. So, the question is, is that the visual phenomena that they uh, observed and took pictures of in their experiments, and that would include Christian Birkeland and these and many others, appear to have a very strong similarity to what we see occurring on the sun. So the question is, is well, is there an electrical component to this? And SAFAR is an experiment, laboratory experiment, which we can, we know what it takes to recreate many of these features or these uh, phenomena. So the idea behind it is reconstruct uh, a laboratory experiment where we have a small anode or uh, a, a positive sphere. Now I'm not sold entirely that with the electric universe model where the sun has to be positive. Okay, um, I was brought on to evaluate the hypotheses and see if it was if there was a means by which we could test it. And um, there are challenges to testing the current model, the gravitational one, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that. Um, it's a bit of a challenge to try to do those things, and uh, to do it, you know, the, the cost expenditures would be significant. But the electric universe hypothesis is actually quite simple. So what we do is we create an anode in the center, and I, that doesn't mean that it's absolute in the sense that in the experiment it has to be always positive in its charge. And what I've said is that let's leave it so that it's positive, uh, grounded, or float in its electrical potential. Um, electric universe model says it's positive. I'm not sold, okay? But that's fine. We can test for that, right? And then we recreate a heliopause, okay, which is with recent discoveries with Voyager 1, the information and the data that came back is that there was significant particle drop right at the heliopause. Now that's significant because it does very much look like the same kind of electrical signature you get from plasma discharge in a, in a standard um, linear tube. The difference with sapphire is that <clears throat> we're not going to have a positive anode at one end and a negative anode at the other that are the same size. What we want to do is replicate as much as what we see going on with the solar system uh, in this model, uh, have a very small anode in size and a large heliopause. So the ratio between the sun and the heliopause is about 650 million to one. Right, just in size, right? You can imagine a sphere, right? And that's an approximation, right? So, sapphire, I mean, that would be, it doesn't mean that we couldn't have that kind of ratio, but right now, there's certain limitations in a laboratory experiment, um, spatial, like physically spatial ratios that you have to stay within in order to assure that you're going to get a plasma discharge. And there's certain laws like Pashin's laws that have discovered, you know, what the range is, what those limitations are. And so we need to follow those. Um, doesn't mean that we can't expand on it later, but you know, the initial experiment, we want, I, I'm a very pragmatic guy. I wanna make sure that once I strap my seat to the pilot's test seat, I have a very high confidence level that when we take off the other runway, we can at least do the, the circuit and get the plane back on the ground again, you see? So it's still significant. So that means you have a huge charge density ratio compared to like say just a standard tube. So what we want to do is we want to have that to really put electrical pressure on the anode to get excited. 
So it's going to want to give off its ions uh, or, its, or its atoms, you see, I and mean, they become ionized. And we want the cathode to uh, have an abundance of electrons because they go in the opposite direction. So that's fundamentally the, the concepts. And it lives in this vacuum chamber, okay? And it's a fairly large vacuum chamber. It's not like, when I say large, I was talking to one fellow out of Lockheed Martin who says, well, you know, we have vacuum chambers we can put spacecraft in, but we don't even think that big, okay? So I say large, you know, it's five by five by maybe eight feet long is uh, what we've kind of shaken out from a um, engineering scope, okay? And when I say engineering scope, it means the engineering is not done. It's like, okay, it's going to look, it's going to be approximately this size. When we get into engineering, we can uh, really, you know, focus in on exactly how big it's got to be. Now, so there's certain key aspects of the experiment that have to be followed in order to get a good, um, for us to replicate these features, these, these phenomena. So we have atmospheric pressure. We want to have a range. So we don't want it to be so tight that we have to have this exact pressure. We want to be able to lower it. We want to be able to raise it. We want to be able to increase the voltage, decrease the voltage, reverse the voltage, let it float. And in doing this, um, we have to have this uh, uh, versatility to, to test these things. So once we've got it, um, these occurring, that's when the current technologies, like Langmuir probes, high-speed cameras, uh, spectroscopy using fiber optics that are used readily every day, um, a product that you really do buy off the shelf, and we can um, put in the chamber and measure the electrical signature, you know, like say out from the anode, out to the cathode or the heliopause, from the solellus out to the heliopause, you know. And concurrently while we're doing that, we use fiber optics to go in and, and take a look at the spectral signature of those ionized elements, you see. And they're going to change. They change from, um, we suspect that they'll be highly ionized around the uh, anode. And I, I suspect that they'll probably become more, they're going to want to collect more of the electrons as they head out towards the cathode. So why would we want to do that? Well, we can't send a Langmuir probe into the sun but we can use spectroscopy. And there is a spacecraft being launched shortly called the IRIS, um, which there's a number of features about it. One more specifically is spectral analysis of what, of what we're seeing occurring in the sun. So what SAFIRE can do is we're gonna say, well, we've done the electrical potential, we've got the signature, we've got these ionized state of species, whatever, whatever it may be. We know that if we make the anode out of iron as an example, we know that the if it's intense enough, um, the iron is going to want to start um, to get out into the ionized atmosphere. And the iron itself will become ionized. But to what degree? So spectroscopy, because it's a standard today, used in medical, astronomy, and so many other disciplines, it's become a standard tool by which you can measure uh, molecular, but in our case we're more oriented towards the ionized state of, uh, of atoms at the various voltage potentials throughout the discharge. So we're going to get a signature back and using fiber optics we can go right in very close and get a very, you know, a very good picture of what is occurring at these, you know, distances, you know, from the anode or solalis out to the heliopause. Take that and then compare it to what, like, say, Iris is getting. 
and then we get a better picture of is it is it possible that you know a great deal or somewhat of what we see occurring on the sun is due to electrical influence and that's what sapphire is about and that's really fundamentally what it's about now there's other experiments we want to take a look at um, once we get these discharges we're also going to put a torella in there or a little planet and put it in between our solellus and our heliopause and when these discharges occur those discharges are going to want to go from the solellus out to the cathode because that's just a normal characteristic but we're going to put a planet or a torella in between the two which will have magnetic fields similar to Birkeland's experiments and take a look at what 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 actually occurs with our you know our torella you see when these discharges are going from the anode out to the cathode especially with this high ratio differential which has never been tested before so none of this work to my knowledge anyway has ever been uh, examined you see and um, in my opinion I think it's a worthwhile endeavor I'm not a, a Thunderbolts person I'm not EU I'm not NPA I'm a guy that has been brought on by you know the government of Canada with the National Research Council um, and other corporations to to get into projects that maybe they're having challenges with to shake them out identify what needs to be done to bring them maybe under control or how do we you know resolve these problems uh, some of the bigger programs were worth uh, about four billion dollars and some more smaller projects like sapphire this is for me not a big project but it's very interesting and um, I think this could lead to uh, maybe a better understanding of what's occurring in the world around us and I think in my opinion um, you know I've spent with my other companies uh, millions you know uh, on R&D projects I think this is in my opinion a worthwhile endeavor it's basic research so there's no real intellectual property um, and I think a lot of um, things may, um, out of kind of a rainfall effect, come out of some of the uh, discoveries that we make with this. So I think that a month ago, um, until we resolved some challenges with respect to spectroscopy, I was actually going to kill the program. Because in my opinion, if you put money into it, you've got to get hard data back out. It's got to, you know, it can't be, it'll be a heck of a light show. And it'd be pretty and spectacular. I suppose maybe people could sell tickets and watch it. Wow, you know, school's like a plasma ball. But who cares? You know, it's just a real expensive plasma ball. But if we get hard data, that's good science. And then we've got something we've, we've got in our hands to say, oh, you know, we've got data. We've got a, a, a model. It's not just a physical model, but we've got hard data. We can develop a model of what is occurring here. And then we can use that to compare what we see going on in the natural world and see if, you know, it develops a level of confidence that, you know, is it possible that electrical uh, influence is, is, is playing a maybe more significant role than, um, than what we maybe initially had thought. You know, some people ask me about gravity, and I said, well, of course gravity plays a role, you know. Um, to what extent? Well, maybe electrical influence is playing, you know, a role as well. Um, and this is really, I think it's worthwhile. You know, I spent uh, about a year and a half on this, and fortunately with the kind of work that I do in consulting engineering, it's allowed me to put the many hours in, and there's been a lot of hours, more hours than actually my consulting, but my consulting covers me, you know. Have you found a receptive audience in the people at this conference? 
Yes, and I think that um, it's a bit of a challenge because you don't want to offend people, right? And I do know that in the scientific community, um, there is bias, and it's, but it's like any company, okay? Every company's got its challenges. Every family's got its challenges. Each individual has their challenges, and everybody feels that there's certain injustices that are being done to them, right? And it doesn't matter who you talk to. You make it my age, you find out that it doesn't matter if it's Toyota or NASA or the guy down the road who's working on science. You know, it's like, well, anybody listen to me, you know? And um, so my perspective is that if I want folks at NASA or STO or Lockheed Martin or ESA or, you know, EIS or any uh, university to respect my work, I need to respect their work. Because these aren't dummies. I mean, these are very, very intelligent people. So what I want to encourage the Thunderbolts and the EU and so many scientists is like, you know, take maybe take a step back. And I know that there's a fence and I know people get hurt. Some people get denied their, their doctorates. Injustice is a normal thing. Um, but don't start standing up on a podium to start bashing, you know, NASA because they're the big guys, you know. So I, that's why I say officially I'm not a part of this group. I've been brought on to examine this as an independent, um, really to consult to these guys. So reception, yes, it has been positive. And I think that uh, so it's, it's been extremely good. And what I want to be careful of is that is the difference between enthusiasm and what I would consider classical science. So yeah, this is really, really cool, money. You know, this is enthusiasm. But I'm more oriented towards, is there any holes, any problems? When I did my presentation, I really do need feedback in that if there's any shortcomings in what I'm proposing, please say something, okay? You know, if somebody's going to put money into this, we can't afford to spend a nickel on it if there's the potential that it could fail. And right now, um, I don't, there's nothing, no red flags, okay? There's certainly challenges in engineering we're going to have to get through, but there's nothing right now um, that I see are insurmountable by any means. I don't, you know, there's a lot of precedent for these types of experiments, but we're just going, you know, a number of steps further. So we're, bu we're building on the backs of the work, hard work of many others, including NASA and SDO and Lockheed Martin. You know, they've got satellites up there gathering data. That's really important to us. What would you say the time frame is for the completion and the activation of this project? It may sound aggressive, but I think the engineering could be completed probably within about a four or five month period. I think that uh, building is not really a big deal, especially now in light of the technology that's available to us. We just put it in. Um, so I think build would be probably maybe another four months. And then commissioning, which is start turning the lights on, so to speak, just to make sure that it'll work. And calibration, I would say, give it a month. Um, and then after that, start uh, concurrently, you can de start developing your test program, you see. So I would say maybe September of this coming year, if it got kicked off now, it's plausible. You know, I've worked on bigger projects that we've got done in lesser time. If you've been exposed to the automotive industry, they have target dates, and you better meet them. So you bring whatever's to bear to make them happen. That would be my approach. And uh, that's why I'm looking for holes. See, if you address any of the challenges up front, you know they're there, then you can put resources or focus on those things, and they relate directly to your timeline. Yeah, and then you bring whatever resources you need to 
to in order to overcome those challenges and uh, get it done. Well, Matthew, honestly, this has been a very good interview. I get um, other interviews that are canned, and I don't like them. It's like, well, these are the questions we're going to pose, and sure. it's like some people like that, but I can't operate that way. Sure. I'm a very fluid, spontaneous I, I guy, that. right? I prefer no breaks. You talk about what is on your mind because you know what's important about your work. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, if I'm genuine and I know what I'm talking about, well, what question is going to precisely you know affect me if I don't if I don't know? Somebody says, "Well, Monty, what about re you know magnetic reconnection?" I say, "Well, look, I don't know. I I'll have to defer that to maybe you know Walt Thornhill or someone who's studying that right yeah. now." When you get to my age, you got you know you understand why certain things don't actually occur when it's like it may appear to be obvious. But it's never obvious until it's obvious. Exactly. Okay. I mean, I've done a lot of work, and I've learned a lot more from my failures than I ever have from my successes. You know, and I failed a lot. Yeah. You know, and um, nothing that has ever gotten out of the public domain or commercially. Sure. Okay. And I would say, okay, right now I do have a hundred percent track record before it got out there. <laughs> but you, before you release something, you do experience a number of failures. Sure. But you catch them before you actually launch your rocket, right? You, you catch them before you actually build your hybrid bus or. You know, so many other projects, and uh, so the obvious <laughs> isn't always obvious, okay? <laughs> and people say, well, it's common sense, and I'm thinking, well, if it was so common, then, so maybe it isn't common sense, maybe, maybe it's uncommon sense. Right. But I will say one thing about education and our culture. I've got five grandkids, okay? Wow. And I raised my own kids, and I've spent a little bit of time with my own kids apologizing for the way I raised them because I thought if they would conform to what I thought, they could maybe avoid some of the pitfalls that I went through. What I've discovered was, is that what I did do is I, I caused alienation between them. Now, we've, we're really good friends now because I've, because as a dad, you know, I have, rec you know, I have the responsibility to, uh, for reconciliation and repentance, you see. I, w I believe in that okay, stuff. I believe in uh, discipline, it's important. But people need to discover for themselves, for themselves, that these things are important. I can't impose them. Because then the very thing that I do, um, you can't impose liberty. You know, it doesn't go together, it doesn't work that way. And be, be the friend. So what I see in the education system, I even see it with my grandchildren, it's where, you know, they go to school to conform. We're going to teach you. You are going to be a sponge, and we're going to show you these things. And my grandsons, uh, I've got four grandsons and one granddaughter, and she's one and a half. And, you know, she's not really at an age where we relate too much, you know. Um, but my other uh, three older grandsons are, you know, the four, four and a half, and five years old. And they come over to Grandpa's house now, and you see, they, and my wife and I want to make them a little white lab coats and a special tag and they come into grandpa's office laboratory thing and I've got plasma ball in there and Newton's cradle and magnets and you know the ultimate grandpa. You know, we get in the, you know, we get together, right? And at Christmas time and I've got this you know small weird kind of fluorescent you know, those high efficiency light bulbs. Yeah. I stick it in my hand and we turn on the plasma ball and I stick my finger in my ear and say, Hey Logan, take a look at this man. Watch this and we, we put it up even close to the plasma ball and it starts lighting up and it's like you can see their eyes light up. Grandpa, how's that work? And I said, I don't know. It's really cool, isn't it? You know? I think it's some electron thing going on there. What's electrons? And I said, Well, that's a really good question. You know, we start talking about electrons and we start talking about magnets. How do magnets work? I said, I don't know, but 
and I've got neodymium magnets, and you know, and I've got like six of them. Logan's trying to pull them apart, grab them, they stick together, you know, and he's got a magnet like a foot, a foot away, and then he's got, he sets it down, and it scoots right across my desk to <laughs> stick to the thing, you see, and, and, you know, at four years old, Logan has got a way to get the Newton's cradle going. He picks up two balls at one end, and I think he picks up another ball at the other end, and he just times it so that the two release, and then just a second later he releases the other one, and it sets up this whole kind of weird kind of frequency thing happening with the balls, and, um, you know, he could repeat it. So it, intuitively, at four years old, he sees patterns, he sees things that are occurring in there. And, he, and we talk about gravity, and we talk about momentum, and I use some of those words. And people say, well, you can't use those words with a four-year-old. Well, yes, I can, because he's learning about a word like momentum, and gravity, and acceleration. Does he understand it? How well do we understand it? Okay? So... It's about discovery, and it's the questions that are often more difficult to formulate than the answers, you see. So if it's about conformity, we get taught not to ask the questions. And I think as human beings, um, we're just really curious. And we want to be able to be curious and not have a demand on us that we have to know the answer, you see. Because I don't know. Now, I'm old enough at 55, and I've got an established career, and I do consulting engineering, and I can say publicly, even to my customers, I don't know. And they don't, they're not threatened by that, because they'll know that we'll formulate the question to come to an understanding to get it resolved, because I've got that track record. Well, but when you're young, there's this pressure that you've got to know the answer. And I think it's pretty awful. But we're raised like that, and it's our culture, it's in the education, and um, I think it really stifles us as human beings. I think humans humans are quite amazing. I mean, we're quite amazing creatures, species, you know. With respect to sapphire, sapphire is hard science. And there can't be any bias. And I don't believe there is. And it's just a study of the natural world. It's not a study of its origins. Because origins are quite another topic. Let's just, for me, I want to examine what's occurring in the natural world. And that's a lot of fun. And it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. So if you have a labor of love, you know, it's probably close to 25, close to 3,000 hours this year alone on Sapphire. And that doesn't include all the labor and the hours that the core Sapphire team, like, you know, Paul Anderson and Wall and Don and uh, Michael Clarich have contributed to this. Altogether, probably close to 6,000 hours just this last year alone, I think, in total, um, on this one project, just between the bunch of us. It's quite a bit. So a lot of hours so far. But it's taken this to get it to this place where, you know, you've got something you can present and say, I think this is plausible. If you don't do that, well, then why would anybody, you know, fund it? Yeah. I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't put a nickel into it. you got to at least get it to a place where people can see that it's plausible, it's feasible, it's, it makes sense. The more we understand the sun, the more we're aware of how sunspots occur and how coronal mass ejections mm. work and stuff. That seems to be a very practical, useful knowledge, knowing that something like the Carrington event, for example, burned out tele telegraph poles back exactly. in the 1860s. That would devastate all of popular culture and, and, and electronics. It, would put us, it could very well put us into the dark ages at least learn more to be prepared somewhat for an event like that. Or provide, or introduce technologies that can, that at least can buffer, you know, um, these things, you know. If you, ha if you know what's coming, maybe there's a particular switch you can use in your camera or your computer that says, oh, 
CME, you know, when it goes into a particular state that it's not going to get affected, or at least not a catastrophic failure, you see. So, you know, um, space travel, other things, uh, protecting astronauts. You know, I think that, you know, if we can do this in a laboratory, and if there's things I'm sure are going to come out of this, that the experiment itself is, in my opinion, um, an initial prototype. If we learn things from this, and they are correct, well then I'm sure that it'll grow from there. And then we can bring a lot of other disciplines to bear on this, other than my own personal and, you know, this particular team's uh, experience. Don't be threatened by the unknown, or uh, it could bring a lot of disciplines into unity. I think it could uh, have the potential affecting all sciences. It looks like it could. It has been absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Monty Childs, it has been an honor and privilege. Yes. All right. Cool. cool. Okay.